everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Skeptical Inclined Science Podcast. We're on episode 20. I'm your host, Evan. My name is Tom. And we're also joined by John. And on our big episode 20, what are you going to talk about, Tom? The new CDC chart about where can you go with or without the mask. Yeah. And later on, I'm going to talk about pain. Ooh, inflicting pain on others, is it? Uh, well, no, I've experienced a lot of pain, pain last two weeks, and I always draw my topics from personal experience. So emotional yeah, pain or what, actual physical pain? I feel no emotions, so it's just physical. Pain. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's good to know. Um, and yeah, today I'm just going to talk out quickly about the this new smell training that people are using to try and help get their taste and smell back after having been infected with it by COVID nineteen. And I also wanted to go into a bit with the vaccine passports and how they're meant to, what that could mean uh, in the future yeah. for people uh, and what, what people think of uh, it being implemented. It's a very controversial topic, but <laughs> we don't shy away from controversial topics on this podcast. Not so, on this podcast. Uh, yeah, I'd be interested. We did a poll as well on our uh, Instagram page, so we can get into that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so before we go into our... Our news headlines. Do you want to say how are you, Tom? How are you getting on? What's up with me? I can tell you one thing and one thing um, only today. I hate Assassin's Creed Valhalla, <laughs> and this game confused me completely. And I will not buy the DLC oh, as no. a form of protest because it's impossible that you finish the entire game and you're only fourteen percent into the story, in the whole story, and it's just really, I didn't even realize that I finished the game. This is how bad this game is. Ooh. And then at the very end, they give you a Thor hammer, hammer and the Thor armor and everything. But since you already finished the game, there is no one to fight with, so it's absolutely obsolete to have this. I hate that game, and I don't recommend it. But and how I don't come, think anyone? How come there's so much left to play? If you because this it. map is so huge and there is so much things completely unrelevant to the storyline that you just... That's just filler. They just become un, undiscovered. And that's why the, the progression of the game doesn't move that much, even though you complete the whole main story. I noticed the same with a lot of games I've played recently, like Cyberpunk 2077. Um, mm. Massive map, lots to do, but the story is pretty quick. Um, yeah. I think the only game that has a massive map that also balances out the length of story right is um, GTA games mm. and also Red Dead Redemption that does a really good job of uh, yeah. using the full map um, to tell the story. Yeah, but the, and as well, but I was going to say the new DLC is going to be in Ireland, so would you yeah, want but, but they are, they completely, from what I heard, they completely missed the the age. As in, like the historical ages, the Viking because, ages, because because the the whole concept of the druids and stuff like that is just is not in line with the age of Vikings. Yeah, Ireland Ireland wasn't like a vicious place filled with like <laughs> druids run, running around and casting spells <laughs> and magic. It was a little bit more up to the speed. So they kind of try to monet like make it money out of this concept of Ireland being like mystical place of druids and stuff like that but it's just not in line with mm-hmm. historic historically of what is going on in ireland at the time of uh, viking right. expansion and stuff like that so it kind of just they're trying to blend two different historical times together just to make it like you know fancy and interesting and and make money out of this so yeah that's kind of trying to make money well. what 
Um, but like, would it, wasn't it all better when you were just like running around Italy on the top of the rooftops, jumping into just... jumping into haystacks? Yeah, <laughs> from like hundreds of meters above. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's just that's really pissed me off. So yeah. So that's all I have. I just had to get it out. Okay. And I, I, so yeah. don't sue us, uh, Ubisoft. It's just our opinion. <laughs> Look. Just take this game back. I don't care. It's barely <laughs> barely played. Like there's only fourteen percent progress. You can sell it. You can resell it as a new one. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And then as well, like I finally got to go home for the first time since Christmas because it's been always such a strict lockdown here. So um, it was good to see my parents. Um, I was just like when I was at home, my mother did a good impression of you, Tom. So I must record her the next time. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and she tried to spoke broken english <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't well i no, i think uh, I, I don't know what to say to that <laughs> i can answer that no it was just like a, a voice <laughs> oh, a voice <laughs> that was it <laughs> okay well as long as it's not offensive then I'm <laughs> yeah, fine yeah. With it. <laughs> and um and yeah now they finally announced on thursday as well they're going to um, loosen some of the restrictions so the hairdresser are going to open here on uh, the 10th of May so I'm going to have to try and uh, decide what, what I'm going to do with my hair I've been uh, yeah going it out so update you on my John hair have, progress you and John have such a fabulous long hair <laughs> growing yeah. now I think you shouldn't you shouldn't, you shouldn't, you, shouldn't uh, you shouldn't go there yeah. what was the thing you wanted to do before remember we had a conversation oh. about this you wanted to um, dye your hair silver <laughs> yeah maybe how's that idea going uh, I haven't really thought of it since. So, <laughs> I mean, you you gotta look like a Quicksilver or something with silver yeah. hair, you know. I do need your... to I do need to get it cut though, just kind of shape it. But then, like, who knows where I go after that? So, but yeah, I have Mullet. it in a man bun now and everything. Should get some dreadlocks, maybe dreadlocks. No, <laughs> definitely not. That would be cultural uh, yeah, appropriation, wouldn't it be? Mm. Remember, you want to get dreadlocks, Tom. Yeah, but I was just tired of washing my head. <laughs> it wasn't for the look. <laughs> no, just practical reason. I was just like, I'm gonna disguise my uh, laziness as a fashion choice. Yeah, yeah. So, what are people looking forward to most when the restrictions ease? You should let us know on our social media at uh, skeptically i on uh, Twitter and uh, skeptically inclined on Instagram. Uh, we look. We love to hear from you. So yeah, uh, on to our news headlines then. John, you wanted to talk about uh, Neuralink. We had talked about this on a previous podcast. They've actually released uh, a video detailing some yeah. of their work. Yeah, so related to the previous topic of deep brain stimulation, um, Neuralink have had an update on what they can do. They have a macaque named Pager. So they implanted him with a Neuralink device. And the in the video, you can see the macaque uh, use a joystick to move a mouse around a screen and uh, to get the mouse into uh, a box. And so when he gets the the mouse into the box, he gets a treat. So that was to train the Neuralink to see what his brain was doing in order to move the mouse around. So they disconnected the joystick and they had him do the same task. He was still moving the joystick, but it was disconnected from the computer. And he was able to move the mouse into the box, showing that his brain was actually controlling it. Mm -hmm. So the impulses he was sending to his muscles in his hand to move the mouse 
the neural link was reading those and translating them to functions for the computer to follow. So after this, they actually had him play Pong. So that's where you have two paddles on either side and you're moving, uh, trying to keep the ball in screen. Um, so they completely removed the joystick and he was just looking at the screen and controlling the paddles with his mind, which that's is mad. massive progress on their previous update, which was where they were able to read the senses from a pig's nose. Uh, so like the, the development here is massive. It was really could impressive. Because I didn't see that. Could you see the something being connected to the no to the no it's it's all wireless but it wow. didn't show like them putting the chip in yeah yeah um but like absolutely crazy 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 that they managed and, to uh, do just it. uh just a note on this as well like this this is purely just reading the the brain waves it's not writing anything to his brain so mm-hmm. uh, for now it's it's just uh very basic but what they could do with that basic information is very impressive yeah so like the uh, the potential um opportunities with it would be endless like especially for people who are disabled or um have problems with their limbs and stuff like that just to control or, or for tesla owners you can you'd be able to drive your tesla without even touching the steering wheel how would that work that you just how would you break if you didn't have to t- oh wait no you're just like <laughs> you just be like a like a you know with them can't you're like where you move the you're moving with the car <laughs> like the video game okay so the point of this is that you're removing an interface which doesn't work like let's say the monkey's arm doesn't work Uh, you're removing that interface and you're bypassing it by just going from the brain directly to the machine um so any machine is applicable here any any control as long as you can understand how the brain is commanding you can translate that command uh so a computer understands it the potential issue here though is that because this macaque can use his arms they're able to calibrate it by watching his brain as he actually moves the joystick. A problem might arise where they have a, a macaque who doesn't have the use of his hands. How do they calibrate it? Maybe they calibrate it based on where his eyes are looking. Or you could use the calibration from a macaque who is able to use his arms and then apply it to a macaque who isn't able to use his arms and then see if the calibration translates over to the other uh, animal. That might be yeah, a way. <clears throat> yeah, because now I'm thinking when you said that, because let's say that the the macaque doesn't have arms. Let's just assume that there is a monkey without arms, and but like possibly the part of the brain that would usually responds to the eye movement coordination that you know that could be completely absent, right? And that macaque and that monkey that never used the arms because the neurons were never taught to develop this kind of connections. Mm. So then perhaps indeed you would have to find another way. Um, yeah. like maybe just m- watching the movement of the eyes, right? Yeah, yeah. I, that's all kind of reading the. I'm not sure how you would describe it. Like, uh, your the brain reading the interface where your brain sends commands to muscles, like mm. uh, mechanical movements. But maybe they want to try and go deeper and um, read the part of the brain which determines intention. So if they can read what the monkey's intention is, rather than reading what the monkey is sending to his arms, then they could basically do any command because they don't need the monkey to be able to move his arms they just need the monkey to be able to think that, i think that's super hard oh, well but but maybe maybe it seems super it's hard just because one step I'm higher not, from like yeah. okay there's something controlling the the motor the motor movements so go one level higher or one level deeper find what's controlling that and try and understand how that part of the brain is commanding the motor part so then if the motor part doesn't work just read what the 
the level deeper is saying yeah and the it's question is if monkeys have the lever deeper <laughs> well they have to like it's all, it all goes somewhere yeah, yeah but it's, it's I not just, just i just think that like thinking and consciousness it's like so human privilege but maybe i'm but like is I'm, it not just a natural and it's just an instinct function. Yeah, but there's something connected so the monkey sees the box and it somehow commands its arms that your the monkey's eyes aren't connected directly to his arms mm. So there's something translating between the, the visual impulse is going into the brain, it's getting translated, they have a desire then to move it. Uh, based on, you know, he wants a treat, he's hungry, that all goes in. So all of those yeah. complex um, thoughts are being processed somewhere. So what I'm saying is mm. the level deeper would be where that central processing is, or no, maybe no, it's yeah, a yeah. decentralized processing, but uh, wherever the level deeper is. God, that'd be, yeah. If he can manage that, then... He can solve and a lot do you of problems. Know? <laughs> Sorry, I have just another question about this. Do you know if uh, if that the neuraling can has to be placed on specific part of the brain to perform certain function, or is it just like universal spot where you put it and it just? Works? Yeah, it would need to be the the threads for whatever part of the brain they want to read. They need to place them there, and then the the threads are quite long, I think, so they can go. Maybe if they place it on one side, they're really of the head, thin, they, though. Yeah, they they can direct them to a certain part but yeah if they wanted to go on the left side of the brain they would obviously implant it there right. did they say what would be the next step like um, after successfully completing this experiment I like haven't, what would be the next yeah i haven't seen any further developments mm. but maybe they'll they'll try more complex tasks okay that was cool thanks for that john uh you can find the video on youtube we definitely recommend it it's monkey mind pong um so yeah and then do you want to go into your story tom about the cdc yeah so um mm, so the cdc released a new chart saying what is allowed to do for people fully vaccinated and unvaccinated people both outdoors and indoors and i think it's it is definitely a relevant thing uh because the current currently the whole world is being vaccinated and so as of wednesday because that's when i checked there was 141 million uh, million of people who received one dose and almost 97 million people who received two doses. Is this in America? I think so. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, it must be because it's a CDC and they're there in America. Yeah. You know, and they also CDC said that after two weeks since the second vaccine, people can take the masks off. So that could that must be a, a huge, uh, huge relief for everyone. Kind it's of like they a, can't take it off in all sorts of situations. On the outdoor, when you are fully vaccinated, you can take you can take out your mask when you when you run in, biking outdoors, attend small uh, gatherings with vaccinated and unvaccinated people. But at the same time, outdoor, and the only time that you have to wear a mask on the outdoor is when you attend a crowded outdoor event like a live performance parade or a sports event. So, do people who are not vaccinated have mm-hmm. to wear a mask still outdoors? Yeah. No, uh, on when you go for a walk, run, bike, or going out biking, you don't have to have a mask. When you attend a small outdoor gathering with fully vaccinated family and friends, you as an unvaccinated person can take off your mask as well. Uh, and that's the only two incidences. For everything else, uh, you have to have a mask. So what's the difference then? Well, how, what more, much more can you do when you're vaccinated compared to when you're not vaccinated? <laughs> Well, it's not, see, it's not told that you can or cannot. It's defined as a safe or unsafe. 
because you, I don't think you can tell people that you can go there if you vaccinate it because that kind of creates um, inequality in treatment, I suppose. So I think they um, they change can to cannot to safe or less safe to uh, to kind of get this incentive across. So it's less least safe for unvaccinated people to attend a crowded outdoor event even when it ha even if they have the mask but i don't think an anyone can tell you that you cannot go maybe they can i don't know how it's gonna play out they updated the rules here on thursday that fully vaccinated people they they could always meet anyways in the house but now as well if one non-vaccinated person goes to uh, a vaccinated house what people who are vaccinated they, they don't need to wear a mask either yeah um I so it's similar it's kind of similar yeah but yeah. the yeah because i was watching i think i sent this that video with trevor noah he was talking about this new cdc guidelines and he was saying how um <laughs> when you're fully vaccinated like the stuff you can you can only do like a few a li one or two things more than if you were unvaccinated with the whole mask thing so but that not it the whole point of this fully vaccinated that you can't transmit or you're very lit li you can transmit very little so why are they still having to say you should be wearing masks in a lot of situations? Yeah, but I don't think anyone, w I don't think anyone would be like just take off your mask. It's just go for like once you're <laughs> vaccinated. I well maybe, <laughs> but I'm not gonna like I'm not gonna listen to medical advice from Tucker Carlson or Joe Rogan or anyone for that matter. Like you know, they they don't really know what they're talking about. But I don't know. It's, I I kind of like that. It's not this vaccination thing is not seen as a reward. And then you give him like extra rights above any other other people who are not getting. I think I think it's a good thing that uh, that there, this, they didn't do it that way. OK. And then then you can exactly say, like, well, what's the difference between getting vaccinated and not vaccinated if you have to wear a mask and similar situations? Well, it's the concept of like you know that you're being safe in this particular scenario while vaccinated okay. whereas the other the unvaccinated paper person cannot have the same level of security as you but in the same time no one can can tell you that like oh you get vaccine you get vaccinated and then this is your that there are your rewards for doing that i think i think the way they're doing it here is better yeah they're okay. just showing like the safe the safetyness and that kind of that kind of hits stronger um an individual do you know what i mean because like if you if you see that they like you're actually not safe being in that environment without vaccine but then this whole thing changes and it's more safe for you then like yeah i would rather do this rather than if you get vaccine we're gonna give you this and these rights like, yeah. well this is I actually gonna like be that. interesting will be when i get on to my story <laughs> my main story we can talk about this more um mm. but like i i still think that it took them uh, like they i remember they published here that the risk of outdoor transmission is like 0.1 percent and they only announced there that it's safe to not have to wear a mask outdoors only this week so i just think i always thought outdoor was safe anyways so it just took them a long time to, to update that well i suppose they want to be safe yeah like but did you safe in the in the terms that they know what they're talking about because information changed so quickly. Yeah, I suppose, yeah. And uh, so do you think it's a good um, graph, what they've shown, how, they, how they've how they gone about it? Because I know that was another thing. He was like, it was very confusing. It doesn't make a lot uh, of sense. I think in terms of showing what's the difference 
and safetyness, I suppose, it does illustrate uh, the advantage of having vaccines. Uh, but I suppose it's, it's I suppose it's meant to be used as a guide, really. You know um, where you where you're supposed to wear a mask and where you're not supposed to, and where you don't have to wear a mask. Uh, but I was thinking about it, and I you know like I think I'm gonna keep wearing mask if I'm gonna feel like under the weather or have a cold or something like that. And I think I might keep doing that. And I think sometimes I'm just gonna wear a mask if I feel like not talking to people because <laughs> they're gonna be like, or he might be like sick or something like that and they just won't bother me. So I think that's, yeah. um, I will I will continue wearing masks if, if I feel like it. Or if you I wanna, think. if you're on a bus or on a train and you wanna keep the whole, your seat beside you free. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> on a mask. Cool. Okay, that's cool. Uh, yeah, and you can see that on the CDC website, is it? Yeah. I'd say that'll be implemented a lot. So if you want to see more about that, definitely um, check mm-hmm. it out. We'll uh, we'll see how, if we're going to be mask mask free by the end of the year. I don't know. Do you think Nobody we will knows. be? No one knows. Uh, hopefully. But like, what's the difference? As I don't think it's about the mask. It's about whether we are able to engage in the social life again. I don't care about masks as long as the pandemic is gone. Everyone should yeah. remember that this is the goal isn't to stop wearing masks. The goal is to stop the transmission of the virus. Exactly, John. People making a big deal out of wearing the masks. And I think this is the way. And they then forget that like the issue is not wearing the mask. The issue is like getting out of the pandemic. Mm. Yeah. Okay. We'll leave it on that note then. Um, and then quickly, I'll just do my news headline before we go into our main story. It's basically smell training. So... No one, none of us here have had been affected by lack of smell. I suppose none of us got COVID actually, um, mm. <laughs> but I think it, it does affect a lot of people where they lost their smell and taste and it didn't come back. So they've started introducing the smell training. So it's basically actively sniffing the same four scent every day for several months with the idea it can help you recover your sense of smell that you've lost if you've um, had covid if you've lost it for more than through two weeks and the reason it's being discussed as is because olfactory dysfunction is a common symptom of covid19 and the researchers found that 60 percent of patients experience loss of smell within the first four days of covid19 symptom onset however for most people this begins to improve over time um, in the UK, it's been estimated that of the 4.4 million COVID-19 infections, there has been over 260,000 people with persistent smell loss or distortion. Uh, and in one study, they showed that 70.2% of COVID-19 patients still had severe olfactory dysfunction after 60 days. So it is still kind of a relatively high percentage mm-hmm. of people who um, go on to develop it after COVID-19. And at the moment, the only treatment for loss of smell or taste is the use of systemic corticosteroids because they kind of lower the inflammation, which is thought to help maybe bring back your smell and taste. Mm -hmm. But they have known potential side effects, including flu retention, high blood pressure, and behavioral alteration. Whereas the smell training, it's being encouraged because it has no known side effects, it's low cost, and it's supported by a robust evidence base. So it's been shown that it can work to get your smell and taste back. Um, so what smells should you use? Could you guess what four smells you could use for this? I think I think they have to be like four very 
simple and strong smells to build yeah. the base on and then on which upon you can create more complex smell experiences so it's flowery fruity spicy and resinous so resinous is like uh tree sap and that's the four they want but you can use any one you don't have to be very use them. broad well I, I think they have to be kind of varied to kind of so they'd probably hit different different smell receptors yeah i think so so like fruit you would be like smelling a fruit bowl for fruit yeah for lemons time, as your citrusy ones yeah. Uh, yeah, flowery again, just like kind of smelly flowers. Any kind of flowery would like smelling cakes lavender. and stuff. <laughs> oh no, flowers, not flower. All oh, right, 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 right. <laughs> hmm, I can't smell this flower. What's going on? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you talking about these little things that grow from the ground? Yes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I was talking about flower. <laughs> I was like smelling what? cakes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> An easy mistake to make. I I sometimes uh, get pick up flowers out of the garden and putting them into my bacon, and I'm like, oh wait, it's the other flower. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh. Anyways, yeah, but you don't have to use just them four. You can use any smell mm. that you feel uncomfortable comf- with. All it requires is for you to smell these for around ten seconds each, at least twice a day, ideally in the morning and the evening. So. Uh, if your people are still suffering from a uh, lack of taste and smell, this is one thing that maybe you could use that might help. And it's not that hard to do. So, um, yeah, hopefully you can literally work. buy like scents or the candle candles that's that like smell in these particular ways and just burn them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's exactly. very handy then. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's, this is uh, a good, um, I think it'd be a good advice or good treatment for people instead of having to take steroids so uh yeah and then that was all i wanted to talk about so okay let's do this so pain i chose this topic because it's close to your heart (laughs) because i've experienced uh (laughs) as i said physical pain and i wanted to understood what happened and i think what happened is was i just being lazy for a year and then i went running and that's what happened um, but anyway, so I was in pain and then I came across this paper that uses epigenetic modifications to eliminate the sensations of exaggerated pain. So I thought, okay, let's, uh, let's see if I can link these two together. So again, just, uh, I'm just going to talk briefly about the concept of, of pain because it's very, like the pain could be very broad topic and it could take forever to explain all the aspects of yeah the pain. i just was going to say when you mentioned you want to do this i was like wow it's really broad i don't know how you would even tackle it but yeah so what i'm gonna maybe tell talk about this um what how is pain defined because I, I suppose it's important to know the definition of of pain very quickly on how is it uh, characterized and uh, uh, set and categorized then I have a few words on how, because in order to understand the paper, we have to know how the pain travels to the brain because, you know, they inhibit certain aspects of action potential, which I will get into later. And then just the results of the paper, which I thought were interesting. What's the name? What's the paper about? Just briefly. Uh, so the, pap- the paper very quickly is using epigenetic mediated gene repression. Uh, the gene is a sodium channel. And once you repress this particular sodium channel, uh, it is they were able to show experimentally that mice were not experiencing pain in the way the control group was. 
Okay. Okay, so I went on looking for what is pain, and I found the International Associati International Association for the Study of Pain. And so these guys know what they're talking about, and they define define pain as an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. Uh, so then I was like, okay, that's very convoluted explanation of pain. <laughs> and I think the philosophy behind it or the reasoning behind it was when when you go to the doctor and you complain from pain, but the pain doesn't have a, a physical or, or visible uh, stimuli, your doctor shouldn't uh, dismiss your claim of pain just because the stimuli cannot be identified. Mm. So that's why, you know, they have this bit where, or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. Because, you know, if you want to go to, you go to doctor and you say, I have a pain here and here. And the doctor look at you and says, well, like, it's not pain because I can't see anything. Yeah. And then you just leave the doctor's office and go on Facebook and rant. <laughs> so that's why these definitions are very loose. But in general speaking, the pain, pain is the body's way of telling you that something isn't right yeah and it kind of it protects you right when you put your hand over like a flame flame or something like that you will feel pain and you know you will have to redraw your your arm and in the same way from the medical perspective a pain is considered or regarded as a symptom of underlying condition yeah and it's your body yeah there's something going on or you should look there's something you should be aware of and it uh, might be, exactly. it mightn't be, maybe it doesn't have to necessarily be tissue damage. That's what you're basically saying. And, uh, you know, and there are, there are people who f- are born with some sort of genetic um, mutations that cannot fully comprehend pain. They don't feel pain and uh, they do have to pay extra attention of their surround- surroundings because they might not even be aware that they broke their hand or leg after falling down or they might not be aware that you know they actually are holding their hand over like an open fire yeah. or something like that so uh yeah the pain is very useful and in terms of like medical diagnosis it was um or in terms of characterization it was um defined it was divided into few types of pain so we have then the, I think the most popular is like the acute pain and the chronic pain, right? And I was I was surprised to learn that acute pain can last uh, from a minute to about to three months. So if you have a month, oh, wow. if you have pain for three months, it's still acute. considered an acute pain. Well, it just I think uh, this chronic can be so long. So uh, yeah, yeah. So then years. then it moves into the chronic pain, which is uh, it doesn't mean that it has that it you feel the pain constantly every hour of every day but it's just it's constant constant constantly recurrent pain that uh, has a long duration time and it can uh, it can la- last for very long and another type of pain is neuropathic pain and this is one that we're gonna discuss in the paper so this neuropathic pain is due to the damage of the nervous or other parts of the nervous system it's often described as shooting stabbing or burning pain and neuropathic pain is a common type of a chronic pain. So by, uh, sim- in the simpler form, as they uh, said, it's the if you have the peripheral nervous system is damaged, that could be like an example of uh, neuropathic pain whenever a light touch uh, can give you a, a sensation of pain. 
And we also recognize um, allodynia. I think I hope I pronounced this right. This type of pain is experienced in response to normally painless stimulus. So it kind of goes in line with the neuropathic pain. Uh, when one person can feel pain being touched and the other person doesn't. And this is very often seen in the, uh, um, I think, in, with the chemotherapy treatment in the chemo patients. These drugs are so toxic to the, to, to the both cancerous and healthy body tissue that, you know, even a light touch to people who have chemotherapy can result in pain. Mm -hmm. And the other and the last uh, type of pain that I'm going to mention here is the phantom pain, which I think is very interesting in itself. It's where uh, people who have people who lost their limbs can experience the pain of that limb. And I I can't even imagine how is that like for for someone who actually experienced it. Yeah, that's your brain is a mad organ. Yeah, it's it's completely crazy. Have you ever known anyone who had uh, no. phantom pains? Uh, no, no, I don't think. Don't think yeah, I, did. I suppose it's not something that you would like to talk about uh, while you're meeting a new person. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tell me about I experience a phantom pain. Yeah, uh, but anyway, so these are the kind of the types of pain, and uh, I'm just quickly gonna tell how the pain tra- uh, travels from the stimuli to the brain. And then uh, we talk about the paper. Um, so when we talk about the pain, we have to mention nonception. Nonception is the neural process involving the transduction, transmission of a stimulus to the brain via the pain pathway. And it's uh, the pain that we feel in the brain is the result of this complex interplay between signaling system and modulation from the higher centers Uh, in the brain and also the unique perceptive of pain of an individual. So this uh, nocee, I have so much problem pronouncing this word and I practice. (laughs) Nonceceptors are the receptors in tissue which are activated specifically by pain stimuli such as skin. And in a simpler way, they are branching ends of a sensory neurons found within the peripheral nervous system. And then when the information is transduced, the information is transduced in the form of electrical uh, signal. And for that, you need sodium ions, potassium and calcium ions to kind of enter and leave the cells to propagate the electrical signal because the ions are electrically charged. So that allows them to propagate the electrical signal. And then um, the actual physical way of the pain so it goes from the primary afferent neurons, which could be like your the neurons in the skin. Then they enter uh, a secondary neurons in the dorsal horn. It's an anatomical feature of the spinal cord. Mm-hmm. And then they travel uh, via the spinal cord into the thalamus in the brain, another feature of the brain, if it's I can say of, so. It's a part of the brain. So. It's a part of the brain. And then uh, from the thalamus, the information is sent to the sensory cortex where the actual pain is perceived. So there's loads of steps. Uh, but this happens the, uh, like so quickly, instantaneously. Yeah, yeah. And um, the reason it can happen so quickly and instantaneously is because our neurons are covered with a mailing sheet. I think this is the third episode in the row when I mentioned the mailing sheet. Mailing <laughs> sheet so important. So important. It actually is important because it isolates the neuron around it. And when the, the, the signal is sent, the signal is not allowed to disperse from the neuron. It's being transmitted from the yeah. from the top to the bottom. But then the electrical signal is not 
strong enough to jump between two neurons, right? Because the neurons are connected uh, via the synapses. It's not like a one long neuron that goes from your skin yeah. to your brain. So to so the electrical signal is not strong enough to to tro to to jump over that synaptic cleft. So that's where the neurotransmitters comes in play, right? These are these molecules, these kind of hormonal molecules that are released uh, from one uh, from one the end of the neuron through the synaptic cleft to the other neuron, and they allow to propagate the signal over the synaptic cleft. Do you know? Can I ask? Like, do you know why? Mm-hmm. Um, why is it that there does a there's a gap or there's a synapse between them? Like, why aren't they just connected? I don't know that answer. I never. I didn't even think about. Yeah, I just <laughs> asking that question. Or I know what because I obviously I suppose the reason that there's not just one long neuron is that if you got damaged, your whole spinal cord is done. Um, but I also just wondered. Like, I'm sure someone could uh, if they can answer that question. I could be interested. Yeah, I'm sure if I googled it, I'd find the answer. <laughs> Well, I think I would imagine in in the brain, I don't know how it works in the peripheral nervous system, but in the brain, you constantly create new neuronal connections, right? Yeah. When you like learn something new or you you learn something new that creates in your brain new neural connections. And I would imagine if you just, if you, if you simplify the complexity of the brain to just few very long neurons interconnecting or something like that, maybe you would lose that diversity. Mm. So it helps. But it th- makes it easier for to form new connections because they don't have is, to. Don't yeah. quote me anywhere. This is like yeah, I just that thought, somewhat. I just thought about it right now. <laughs> um, I lost my uh, I lost my train of thoughts. Oh yeah. So now we know that uh, we need ions, the sodium ions. We need um, neurotransmitters just to get the message across to the brain when we feel pain. So <clears throat> obviously there are ways to stop this from happening. And for example, that's where opioids come into play. They are very good. They're very good medications to kind of stop uh, the sensation of pain. They, they are able to interfere with that pattern. And, and of course, opioids, when we think about opioids, we, we often uh, think straight away about morphine, heroin. Um, do you know any other opioids? Uh, fentanyl, I think. I, yeah, I think that's the main ones anyways. Yeah, I'm sure there's much more. But but our body also produce um, opioids-like substances. For example, endorphins are forms of opioids. And that's why in our own, uh, in our bodies, we have the opioids receptors. They are there for our, our endogenous opioids to attach itself. And, mm-hmm. you know, endorphins are used, are released by us, you know, to manage pain or like anxious situations you you get the release of endorphins and or kind as, a, of as a reward of doing something yeah it can calm you down or, yeah. uh, but then in 1847 a chemical formula for morphine was deduced and from that point onward it was very easy to 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 tweak the chemical formula and get many different derivatives of opioids and you know, and they start being used in the clinical settings. Like the use of morphine and heroin was very popular uh, back in the day. So, <clears throat> where are the opioid receptors uh, located in our body? Where they are distributed widely within the central nervous system, and to the lesser uh, extent through the periphery, and they are highly present uh, at the synaptic cleft between two neurons. So that's where like there is a high density of them. And they are usually G proteins, G protein coupled opioid receptors, which means when you 
when the opioid binds the receptor, there is a cascade of signaling that happens that goes down the, uh, down the way. And the, uh, the opioids getting attached to the opioid receptors, it creates, it creates an event that results in the reduced neurotransmitter release. So the reason the opioid receptors are at the synaptic cleft is because that's where the signal is most vulnerable to interruption because it has to jump the synaptic cleft. And when they attach themselves uh, right in this region, um, the it's cascade stopped. of e events that happens afterwards inhibits the neurotransmitters to jump over, yeah, yeah. if I can say that way. Therefore, the signal uh, propagation is halted. And yeah. that kind of, you know, that um, makes you not feel pain. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but that has, a, that has a drawback because it also creates addiction because opioids, they not uh, they're not very specific in the terms that like we only will halt the pain. They, you know, they will act on all the neurotransmitters, even on those that are not involved with the with it with the propagation of the pain signal. So, for example, um, that the opioids have uh, can cause people to develop a physiological and psychological dependency, and and you always you always hear that the people who are who who do abuse uh, opioids, especially like morphine and heroin they come into these euphoric effects, right? It doesn't look, when you look at them, because they just kind of look sleeping, but the sensation is like very yeah. euphoric. And it's because um, the opioids affect the GABA neurotransmitters. GABA controls the release of dopamine in the brain responsible for perception of pressure and reward. And attachment of opioids to opioid receptors in that area uh, represses the release of GABA neuroreceptors and in turns that <clears throat> decrease in release of GABA increases the release of dopamine mm. and dopamine is the the sense of pleasure and reward yeah. Yeah. so basically that's how it happens and pain is treated chronic pain is treated with opioids and it does lead to the dependencies yeah. and you know it can ruin a people's life so it's very <clears throat> it's very it would be very good to have a way of managing pain uh, without getting people addicted uh, to physiological, uh, to pharmace pharmaceutical compounds. Yeah, so it's basically like if you could come up with um, an, uh, like a type of pain relief that would just target the neurons where the pain is coming from and not doing, like affecting the rest of the neurons, that's what you kind of would want. Yeah, exactly. Uh, block, just yeah. block the pain pain neurons, where the pain is coming from. Block the, um, block the, block the pain. And the non- non-permanent way because yeah. you know you, you want you want this to be uh, yeah. reversible but um yeah so like this is basically uh, isn't this the big problem with um the opioid crisis isn't it like within america that yeah. opioids are being um are being prescribed and over prescribed I'd over prescribed say. yeah and yeah it's leading to huge addiction problems and it's it's funny how like when we talk about this opioids crisis, it's not even like the abuse of street drugs, right? Yeah, it's yeah. like medically prescribed opioids that are supposed to you know get you through some rough period of time, and I'm sure they they do that. But you know our psyche gets so e so easy mani easily manipulated that you you can't really blame people for you know falling a victim to these yeah. strong pharmaceutical compounds like. I think um, HBO or a uh, recent documentary about that. It's with that Oxycontin. Um, mm. This the the founders of that. It's just absolute like evil, evil people. 
how they knew right. it was addictive and they just wanted to get it out on the out out on the in the markets out in the people and then they knew people get addicted and they could make money is that the pharmaceutical up. companies the companies that produce that's the that? big one i think that oxycontin one i think that's that was the one that was had a major big problem in uh yeah. pain pain opioid like what pain medication that was an opioid that was leading to addiction and people just couldn't get off it like yeah it's just you know you, you just get addicted and that's very and that's just hard yeah but so that's why kind of these 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 form of research are important you know the research into a pain that you know that so that not everyone has to get addicted or nobody has to get addicted um so through the years of experimentation about pain and, and pain receptors and pain pathways um, they um they correctly the scientists correctly deduce that the influx or efflux of ions is needed for to propagate the signal as i said and they identify three isotype isotypes of sodium gated channels uh, sodium v 1.7 1.8 and 1.9 and out of these three they discovered that a loss of function mutation in uh, sodium v 1.7 leads to congenital insensitivity to pain it's a rare genetic condition and uh, the other way around if you have a gain of function mutation it creates um it creates an environment where you're very sensitive to any stimuli that is converting then into the pain mm. so they started thinking okay if we can repress it maybe it will um it would lower the sensation of pain so that was the that was the thinking about it so it's what it's and, this, it's an iron channel in a in yeah, your it's arms. an iron channel that allows um migration of sodium during the during the signal uh, mm -hmm. transduction um, so how would what is the best way to suppress genes well <clears throat> in the age of crispr <laughs> crispr is a very exactly. good way yeah yeah and uh, it's actually it's funny how this paper uses a uh, deactivated crispr and this is something that i think we already talked about during the retinitis pigmentosa episode when they also use deactivated crispr not to modify the gene but to uh but to promote expression of different gene that could replace the one that doesn't function in the eye and hence give the um, give give back the the sight how does that work again i can't <laughs> right so <clears throat> you have the 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 cas cas9 crispr system yeah that you still you still use the guide rna to guide the crispr to into the region where you want it to find itself mm -hmm. but the, the the protein that does the incision into the nucleic acid because it's an enzyme it's been deactivated and it's just used as a place of attachment for transcription factors whether to repress or enhance the transcription of a protein of the transcription of a gene so basically you have this cas crispr system to bring the uh, transcriptional enhancer or suppressor into the gene and then via that you can over enhance or repress activation of a gene oh okay so, and in yeah. this case they're trying to repress oh, repress yeah so it just yeah. it doesn't cut it it just basically blocks it yeah so it lost the the, uh, the cas9 lost its endonucleic endonuclease function so it cannot cut the nucleic acid anymore but they attached they fused this crap crap key <laughs> crap domain and crap is a transcriptional repression domain <clears throat> and this 
this transcriptional mo uh, modulation system takes advantage of the high specificity of CRISPR-Cas9 while simultaneously increasing the safety profile because no permanent modification of the gene is performed because you literally just suppress its expression. You don't change it, you don't modify it in any way. You mm. just suppress it. And you can reverse uh, it. Yeah. Um, so this is the one way they did it. They, they wanted to do it using the CRISPR-Cas9 and the other uh, the other system they used is the zinc finger protein. Um, the zinc finger proteins are also end, uh, endonucleases proteins that are able to code DNA, kind of like restriction enzymes. Yeah. Um, but they are less specific than CRISPR. And of course, for the purposes of this experiment, they also had to be modified just to be able to recognize the sequence. but not to induce coating of the nucleic acid. Yeah. So they just, again, use only as a guide to get into the uh, into the region of the gene. And they also have this crap domain conjugated to them. So they just get into the location and they use these crap domains to suppress the sodium, sodium gated channel. And they use this model, they use the systems on three pain models. First one is the thermal sensitivity, uh, and you have a control mice, and the mice that was exposed to an agent that creates inflammation. And then the second type of uh, pain is this polyneuropathy induced by paxitacil, which is a, a chemotherapy drug. So then the uh, mice were tr treated with this chemotherapy drug, and then you do tests and you see that they are oversensitive to pain, and that's how you know your 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 model works. And the last is um, is another um, sensation of pain induced by ATP derivatives. So <clears throat> just a different mode, different ways of creating pain model uh, pain models in animals. And <clears throat> the way they uh, they did the um, the experiments uh, was very straightforward and the results are very, uh, um, very nice. First, it was just a very simple way of optimizing how much of the Cas9 and the zinc finger protein have to be delivered to, to get the, <clears throat> the best response. So that was done in the, in the cell cultures. And after they, they, they calculated or they, they assess what is the most optimal concentration of the adenoviruses vectors. And then after successfully um, testing this in the um, neuroblastoma cells of my of mouse, they went on to the actual uh, in vivo models. And the first was the, <clears throat> the first, they tested this, this thermal pain uh, in the mice that was, that was treated with this agent that create inflammation. Yeah. Of course, the control was saline, and they injected the mice. First, they injected the mice with the therapeutic uh, compounds. After uh, 21 days, the thermal pain sensitivity was measured to establish the base threshold. Then, after that was done, they triggered mice to develop inflammation in one of the paths. And then they measured how what is the change in the threshold of the pain in the mouse that was treated with a control versus the mouse that was treated with this uh, Cas9 or the zinc finger protein uh, in the in the scenario where there is an inflammation and the scenario where there is no inflammation. And uh, as expected, compared to the saline injected pause, 
Caraginian. Caraginian is that compound that induced inflammation. Yeah. Be very hard on my pronunciation today. <laughs> this okay, Caraginian yeah. injecting paws develop thermal oversensitivity to pain. Uh, they measure it by a test that is called paw withdrawal latency. So the longer the mouse can tolerate uh, a stimuli that triggers a pain, the longer it can tolerate, it means it more it is more resistant to the sensation of pain. Versus if, it, if you cannot resist the stimuli for long enough, your latency is very short and the mice will go will remove it pause very quickly. So it's just basically and, time to remove yeah, the paw. Yeah. And time to remove the paw uh, from the away from this from the dangerous stimuli, from the stimuli of danger. And it was shown that the mice that were that received this this treatment, it can, it looked like the pain threshold was at the same level as a normal mouse, even though this mice was sti stimulated with this inflammation. And normally, you know, when you have like broken leg, it's all arm, there's inflammation around your bone. Yeah. You touch it even gently and you feel pain because it's inflamed. But in this mice, if you think about the same scenario, if in these mices that received the Cas9, the deactivated Cas9 or zinc finger protein, they were being touched in that inflamed area, but they did not perceive the pain mm. because this this, so, this sodium ion channel was repressed and potentially the the signal was not being completely sent to the brain. That's why they they could they couldn't really perceive the sensation of that pain. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so <clears throat> so that was very. Uh, that was very nice. And what was it? And, and you know, when the in the when they didn't trigger the inflammation, it was just the same in both. It was yeah. only when they, yeah, it was only when it they wasn't the same in both. Yeah. So oh, okay. when you look at the graphs, the latency is only shorter in the mice that were tr that were treated with this inflammatory agent, but did not receive the deactivated Cas9 or zinc finger protein. Okay. So then it was just a, a mice with inflamed paw, and when you touched it, she the mice immediately moved away because it felt pain. Yeah. But in the non-inflamed scenario and in the inflamed scenario with the therapeutic agents, the pain threshold was very high. So it took a lot of stimuli, uh, much more stimuli for for them to remove this paw compared to the one that was just inflamed. Yeah. So so that kind of shows that with this. A modification of the sodium gated channel you can uh, you can change the how the pain was perceived by this mice by the mice yeah, so yeah. that's really cool and of yeah, course this and this this paw experiment was also validated with the qpcr when they actually measured the repression of the sodium gated channel gene so it's not just uh, the paw experiment it's also yeah. like the qpcr actual numerical the gene data. expression was reduced exactly and and in the um, and then they also did it in the um, in the paxitacil scenario. So this is like very, very relatable to what we have talked about. You know the the way that people with the chemotherapy suffer from uh, from these mechanical pains, where like you know you touch them and they're super sensitive. So they uh, they carry out the experiment in a very similar way. The mice were transduced with these four constructs. Uh, after after 14 days before paxitacil administration the threshold of pain was measured again 
so again, it was this Paul experiment when they when they were measuring how long my mouse mice can resist moving away the uh, the paw, and collectively after twenty one days, the paxitacil was administrated, and then mice were tested for this oversensitivity to touch. And similar results were observed again after uh, the mice that were injected with the actual therapeutic agent and then administered the paxitacil, the paw latency withdrawal test performed better than in the mice that, were, that did not receive the therapeutic agent but received the taxipacil. And <clears throat> so that was, um, that was very interesting because yeah. they see the same result that the mice doesn't feel the same doesn't perceive pain in the same way. Yeah. And then they thought, can we reverse a chronic pain? What if a person already receives this uh, chemotherapeutic drug? Can we modify, can we reduce the expression of the sodium channel and see if the pain would, doing, yeah. would disappear? And um, so they did exactly that. And they were able to confirm through the qPCR and through the pole withdrawal latency test that indeed First, you first they exposed the mice to the paxitacil. Then they treated them with the therapeutic therapeutic agents, and they they, they compared how what was the pore withdrawal before and after. And and again, the late the withdrawal it took longer time for them to withdraw that uh, pore. So, it but how long would they need to be treated for it before you would see? Like, is it more preventative or actually kind of used used as a treatment? That's what I would be kind of curious. So I think it was uh, one of injection at the center concentration of AAV. They waited 21 days maybe to to make sure the full repression of the sodium gated channel. Uh, yeah. So <clears throat> yeah, but so like if the so it would take like 21 days. So if someone was on chemo and you're like, okay, I'll give them this t- treatment, it would take 21 days really before you would see the effects. Well. Th- they waited 21 days in mice. Mm. Well, I don't know if maybe they could wait shorter amount mm. of time. But, but I suppose 20- it'd be good if you were like, okay, you have to get chemo. They'd be like, okay, well, we'll start this treatment before you go on it. So that way yeah. you don't feel as ill. Yeah. Well, mm. we have to see how this translates into the, um, into the humans. But um, per- perhaps now we know that it only, that it takes uh, approximately 21 days for it to be effective but then it lasts for 42 84 and 208 days oh wow so in the mice they, they were treated and then they tested them again after 42 days after 84 days and 300 208 days and they still were, were able to see the benefits of that of that treatment uh, and i think it was a little bit shorter for the paxitacil yeah, it was, uh, I think, 107 days. It was the the longest they could see with the paxitacil. After 107 days, it wasn't um, as effective. But still, after one uh, one um, Yeah, that's really impressive. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a um, that's holds, that is very impressive research. I think just the scary thing about it is uh, the fact that it is a CRISPR-Cas9, although it is deactivated CRISPR, but it's, you know, epigenetic modification and it just sounds very big and scary. I think it's uh, not, the, like, I always think it's, as long as it's reversible, it's a lot, it's not too big of a deal. Like, I know 
some of them when you when CRISPR Cas9 it cuts it out, then that's permanent. Mm. So yeah, that that wouldn't be like I wonder was there many like offsite effects or anything like that. Yeah, but, so they did the safety profile on it on the animals and uh, they actually they actually tested the safety profile very interesting because they not only look at the physio are there any physiological and mm, i suppose neuronal changes in the mice but they also investigated the behavior of the mice mm. if oh yeah that's the, uh, yeah. if the if the intervention with the um, uh, signaling with the sodium gates changed the way they socialize with other mice did it change the way um they if they feel more anxious or less anxious if they're social how how do they build nests and stuff like that and um and so far they they from the behavioral and the gene expression perspective the the treated mice they don't really act any different than the control group and later on in the discussion they also praise the location which is a uh, uh, the drug or the, the Cas9 or the zinc finger protein were injected into the spinal cord of the mice. So it's a, it's it seems like very invasive procedure to stab someone in the back. Mm. But, you know, the, the location is also very it, beneficial. Yeah, because it minimizes it going into the bloodstream and, exactly, and that's exactly and where you want to target because that's where your neurons are. So Yeah, yes. And, of course, the, the, the spinal cord is Im- immuno... Um, privilege so there is no there's no immune cells that could recognize the aavs or cas9 mm. and trigger an immune response against it mm. so it's a it's very interesting i just don't like how it says that it can last for 308 days so mm. uh, yeah. it's just it takes a long time for so you to like time. yeah yeah but yeah. they also showed that if you not um if you if you have not been triggered with something that exacerbates feeling of pain this cas9 doesn't interfere with your normal per- perceive of pain you know that not the cas9 that repression of that sodium cancel doesn't interfere with your normal, normal perception of you know oh, like pain ha- and touch. how but like is how is it that possible like how is it that, that this is just for this specific pathway is it, they already investigated that it that this I, path this pain pathway is only triggered by these certain drugs or certain well, I, well, I think it's because the the type of the channel they they target. So as I said, there is um, you have these ion gated channels, and there is uh, there is more of them than just the sodium V one point seven. There is one point eight, one point nine, and there is also one point six, one point three, and so on from one to nine. So you have uh, loads of isotopes, uh, but they just experimentally not in this paper but in their previous work they experimentally shown that sodium v1.7 is responsible for experience of these of of this kind of sensations associated with exaggerated pain and uh and they try to target it with the small molecules they try to target it with antibodies but just the high um similarity between the isotopes made very difficult oh, for the okay. small molecules and antibodies to target exactly the sodium V1.7. Therefore, you, they had to go level lower and just properly repress the gene from producing the protein rather than interfering with protein. Mm. So, so this, they, they, they had done a lot of work on establishing that this pathway oh, with this, this yeah, yeah. neuron, or this, this uh, receptor. Is it a receptor? This, 
It's a receptor, yeah. yeah it's it's, a, well, it's, it's a gated, ion-gated channel. Yeah. Uh, so I think, yeah, so it's a build-up of the previous work that they have done in this area combined, you know, with the kind of phenotypes they see in patients because uh, they do mention that people who have mutations in this sodium, in this NAV 1.7, they either feel no pain at all or they, uh, they are very sensitive uh, to any form of pain, if it's either loss of function or gain of function. So they kind so of, it, this NAV 1.7 looks interesting. Let's investigate mm -hmm. it. So it, it's, it's very specific to a certain type of pain. Uh, I think so from, I think, well, they only tested three, uh, three different pain models in anim mm. three dif three different animals models that were induced with pain in different ways, three different ways three different ways so <clears throat> i think it's a it's a great start and it, mm. it has a great promise but you know how far this is from the clinical implementation i'd say probably a little far away still yeah. yet but um but it, this paper is already built on the knowledge that this group or other people have been working on so you know it can only be it can only be improved i think mm, yeah it's super interesting though it's cool to see that um you can you can try and target pain yeah. more specifically and it must be great for them just to be like it kind of they've gone through so much steps to show that they think this is related to pain and they finally managed to mm. get a way of uh inhibiting it or inhib inhibiting its expression so and they show that it does work so must be very much a relief for them yeah i don't uh, think it's the great method to kind of like you know cure a broken heart you have <laughs> emo emotional pain but in the in the scenarios of uh, perhaps dealing with a chronic pain uh, yeah. or dealing with the uh, chemotherapy induced pain, it's uh, it's definitely a way that could be used to deal with these experiences. I've always I'd be curious though, like um, you know, like in certain sport, like with sports that they get hurt a lot. Like, would people be like using it as a doping agent to prevent them feeling pain? And that they they would let, end up getting way more hurt than they they would they normally would be. Um, I suppose if you wouldn't feel pain, you would be very um, confident. Yeah, well, know? like if you were in like a you boxing match, going. UFC, you would like if you got knocked out, you would you would have to be knocked out basically, or if you broke something, you wouldn't really feel it. So you wouldn't no. feel as the impact of punches as much. So you would yeah. be willing to put your body, push your body no, exactly. a lot more. So. It would pro it would definitely probably make someone just keep charging because if you don't feel it, it means everything yeah, is yeah. okay. Yeah. Another doping agent have to look out for. But anyways, that's way down in the future. <laughs> Let's and, not go uh, that far. Yeah. So we always be thinking way down the line. Okay, yeah. that was yeah, was that was cool. Um, thanks for that. Like, be interesting to see how that goes. And uh, yeah, look all at, I can uh, say is that neuroscience and neurobiology. And neurogenetics is so hard to yeah. wrap your head around it. It's it's like the ways they used to describe brain and different neurons. It's like I've it's like a language I've never seen before. Mm. It took me it took me one day just to label everything so I know what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Neuralink definitely has the work cut out. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, look, maybe maybe perhaps we won't even need to repress genes if the Neuralink will be able to interfere with the actual electrical signals being mm, sent. Yeah, you know, interesting. So that's it's also another, one way to think about another it. way of flip of the coin, of way of yeah. uh, 
if that's even Corner. possible. I know so little about Neuralink that I don't know if I should even make comments like that. Well, I don't know I what it can do. It seems on uh, unlimited their potential. So yeah, like a god. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah. Okay, that was cool. Thanks for that, Tom. No problemo. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So I'm going to go into my topic now. Uh, are vaccine passports a good idea? This is very divisive. I seen they were protesting against this down in Cork on Saturday. So um, hopefully I don't. Um, I'm not. Going, I'm trying to be an impartial. And as well, I suppose as John was telling me, this isn't more. It's more a diplomatic problem. It's not really a scientific one, I suppose. But I just wanted to kind of discuss it anyways because I think it's. Um, it's an interesting discussion to have and mm-hmm. more than likely it's not going to implement it as just vaccine passports but um it's just something that it will it could be possible in the in, in the nearby future not permanently i think mm-hmm. so i'm at the first thing i wanted to say is that at the moment the eu green pass is that's one that's kind of being implemented uh, and it's hoped that it could uh, facilitate free movement for work and tourism and it's to include info about vaccination, COVID-19 recent recovery, I think in the last six months, or a negative PCR test. So um, EU citizens will be able to obtain the pass if they have at least one of these three elements with one vaccine dose enough to apply. Um, So in this context, I'm just going to talk about the vaccines, but I suppose it's because if you haven't had COVID recently and maybe you don't like getting the test done, then the vaccine is the only other option and some people might just be comfortable with that. So maybe the first thing is like, what's your general thoughts on vaccine passports, both of you? John, do you want to take this one first? Well, I think I know yours as well, because you kind of mentioned it, like you, you don't agree with yeah. discriminating on, on vaccination status. Well, first of all, in Ireland anyway, I I don't know if they'll even be useful in the amount of time it's going to take to get them passed. Um like through legislation all all of that i feel like we'll have a critical mass of people vaccinated such that it won't even be relevant anyway so i suppose it's more relevant for people coming from abroad from countries that might have high levels of covid or um haven't been vaccinated um from my own personal point of view from trying to use services and if they're telling me i need a vaccine passport or need to prove that i've been vaccinated um I don't have a problem with private companies doing that. Like, if I can't go on an Aer Lingus flight because their policy is that I need to be vaccinated, I'm totally okay with that. That's totally their right. Government services, like public services, it's a bit harder to justify. Do you want to... Did I cover you already? Yeah, well, basically I don't... Yeah, it shouldn't be just because... Uh, this passport shouldn't be a reward of getting vaccinated. People should get vaccinated knowing the benefits of the vaccine and it should be like a responsible choice rather than a transaction, you know? So it's a bit like a bl- giving blood. It should be you want to do it rather than... Yeah, so that's why rather than... As John said, there could be places or scenarios where the vaccine vaccination might be required by uh, to either enter certain spaces or or stuff like that, but... The choice of making vaccine, vac- the choice of taking up the vaccine shouldn't be a form of a transaction, like like I said, or of seeing is of seeing getting the passport as a reward for getting vaccine. There should be more effort put on understanding the importance of the vaccine and why why vaccines are <clears throat> beneficial. Yeah, 
That's okay. that's how I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think you both kind of covered a couple of it already. So first thing to mention maybe is what vaccine passwords mean and what in what context should it apply. So it can refer to many different activities from the ability to travel abroad to ability to go to work. It can refer to many different people from the population at large to those in specific occupations. And it also can refer to many different times. So like from early in the vaccine rollout to those to the point where the entire population has been offered their job. So it can have different meanings in different contexts. Mm-hmm. And I think the public support for these passports, it varies greatly as a function of these factors. So a survey from a range of countries suggests that people are more favorable to the idea to the extent that it relates to activities seen as optional rather than integral to everyday life, such as international travel, which mightn't be essential uh, compared to those who might work with vulnerable populations or like maybe when in the future when uh, everyone has the, the vaccine then it more likely maybe that could be more beneficial than at early stages when not as many people have it so um, and it's I think it's just like in certain situations where you want to go back to normal life like in pubs and trying to demand evidence of uh, vaccination that can be kind of controversial um, I know in the UK they recently had one um, in a nightclub I think it was where they uh, allow people it was vaccination status so I think they had a COVID test as well uh, and I remember they were when they initially announced this they were going to do these trials in different events and one of them was in a comedy club uh, mm. and this was this wasn't even just vaccine status they were doing like a negative COVID test as well but even just this, a thought her just being associated with a, a passport the the comedy club got bombarded with like a lot of angry messages about trying to have this COVID health certificate because they thought that was what you needed to have like a proof of vaccine um and they pulled out of the trial just because of this um angry feedback was that in UK as well yeah it was in Liverpool oh yeah yeah. Uh, and it's like it seems like there's such a negative stigmatization with this vaccine passport already that people are just so overwhelmingly angry and negative about it um so yeah, it just it just seems like already the damage has been done, and I don't know how they would try and uh, minimize this already because so many people are against it. Like, how do you get people to come back, maybe to be in favor? Um, so, what are the reasons to oppose a supposedly vaccine passport? Like, how would it work? How could privacy be maintained? How the scheme would be implemented and enforced? And how could fraud be avoided? Uh, and it could raise a lot of questions as well. I suppose what you were saying, what discriminations because a lot of social inequalities and social divisions with significant differences between privileged and the deprived and maybe the secure and the vulnerable so this can be seen in israel where palestinians versus uh, israelis are more likely to have not been vaccinated um and it can also be seen as well in the uk where over 70s 91.3 percent of white british have had a first dose within the black African community, the figure can be as low as 58.8%. Uh, and this can might be results in a sort of vaccine apartheid where members of marginalized groups who are less likely to be vaccinated or less trusting of the vaccine could be excluded from participation in everyday social life. And maybe it could lead to conflict. But mm. on the other hand, one trump card that a lot of people can use with the vaccine passport is that in addition to generating the economic and social activity, it 
might give people an incentive who are otherwise reluctant to get the vaccine because it kind of be like, okay, I want to get back to my normal life. I'm just going to get it done. And uh, then at least I can return to normal activities. Whereas if they don't have this vaccine passport, they're like, well, it's not that necessary. I won't bother to get it. Uh, and this can be like especially important as the vaccine rollout begins to include younger age groups who less, suffer less from COVID-19 infections and have a less reason to get the vaccine in order to protect their health. Uh, and in other words, it could be argued that vaccines will help increase take up and ensure that no one needs to be left out. What do you think of that argument? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> it's like this whole vaccine thing it's so like there is not i don't think there's one perfect argument hmm yeah um and it was interesting so the sur- a survey was released as well last week by the university of bristol so they did like a few surveys to see what people's opinion was this of these vaccine passports it was shown that almost 50 percent of people who think vaccine passports going to be implemented will be sold on the black market in response to this and 31% think that passports will reduce our civil liberties. So it's not actually that high of a percentage, I suppose, but it's like nearly one third of people think it will have a significant impact on our day-to-day lives. The belief that vaccination passports will have a negative impact is much more common among people who are vaccine hesitant, with 76% thinking that passports will infringe on civil liberties compared to 31% of the public overall which i just mentioned well yeah it makes sense right because they think the the civil liberties will be infringed because they're not gonna get vaccinated yeah and then you then to participate in the social activities you if you are required to show the vaccine passport then obviously the people are vaccine hesitant they're not gonna have that yeah but i'm much more worried about the black market stuff then yeah. whether if some random person worries if if her rights are infringed or not. For private things, I just don't see the difference between um, needing to, I don't know, wear nice shoes to go into a club <laughs> compared with this. Like, private establishments have a right of refusal. Um, so that's why I think it's not it's not the vaccine passport they're against. It's they don't want to be they don't want it to be more inconvenient to not be vaccinated because mm. they don't want to get a vaccine. So the problem isn't with the vaccine passports, it's with the vaccinations. So as Tom said, I think it's more important to work on how to get those people vaccinated by not mm. coercing them, not forcing them to get, get one via a vaccine passport, but by educating. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, and yeah, there is a similar divide when it comes to the passport being used by the government for surveillance 63 percent in the skeptical versus 21 percent in the overall uh, and whether unvaccinated people will face discrimination 71 percent again at the skeptical versus 30 40 percent however so, while some have concerns about it notable numbers of the public say the passports would make them feel more comfortable doing various activities such as traveling internationally so 42 percent and going to a pub or a restaurant so 44 percent so actually shows that even though it might help with discrimination, I suppose, or reducing your civil liberties. More people, nearly half the people polled were like, I actually would feel more comfortable going to a restaurant or a pub or going internationally if this is implemented. Uh, And maybe then would that be a case that it would help increase 
economic the economic recovery quicker if people were like okay they've implemented it i'm safe to go here whereas they're like oh this this isn't implemented so um it's another argument i suppose maybe for it can i can i suggest something um yeah. is this is the issue over the vaccine passport is completely artificial because even before the COVID-19 situation to go to the certain parts of the world, you had to have certain vaccines in order to protect yourself and others and what's not. So how is that different from what we're saying right now, that in order to feel safe and travel safely to different parts of the world, you are required to have one more vaccine on top of what you have already received? Like, how is that different? Why is this being made an issue versus um, all the other vaccines that you have to take to go somewhere like the South Americas or uh, South America? Isn't or, it that the case is that the, um, with the other vaccines, they, they actually, they're more fatal, the viruses, or they're more likely to cause significant morbidity. Whereas with this COVID, it's not, as you're young, like it doesn't really cause as much, but yeah. But like the system is already in place, you know, like mm. the the, vac- the vaccination requirements to go to places already exist. I think it might be because the countries that require vaccine certs are generally, well, from what I've seen, it would be African countries, South American countries. So maybe people in Europe and America just haven't, <laughs> they're just privileged enough to not have ever needed one. And so they don't realize that it's actually kind of common in some areas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, then another... I mean, but, okay, but I just did a quick, quick, quick uh, Google search. What vaccines do I need to go to Japan? I don't think any of us considers Japan uh, a poor country, right? And uh, you have to have uh, chickenpox, diphtheria, flu, measles, mumps, rubella, polio vaccine, hep A, hep B, Japanese encephalitis measles uh loads and i'm sure people do get them done to get into japan yeah it's an interesting uh that's an interesting one and i like i i totally agree with your point tom i think it's not different there's there's no difference at all yeah like i know it's a it could be inflammatory inflammatory topic to talk but like we already participate in the system already exists like nobody's maybe the one difference is that you or I need to get the vaccines, those vaccines to go to Japan, but to continue doing activities in our own country, they're now saying we would need a certificate. So it's not like we're yeah, going cross border okay. to another country. So that might, might be an argument of theirs. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's domestic. Doing anything domestically is what people are, I think have a big issue with. Maybe not as much internationally because mm. yeah, this is the standard, but Again, a lot of people who are skeptical will be just like, no, we should be allowed what happened to get vaccinated. Um, but yeah, I think what you were saying is about what I had, like it would increase uptake if it was implemented. It's still kind of conf- contradictory because a small in- Israeli survey found that 31% of residents said that the Green Pass would per- persuade them to get vaccinated while 41% said it would not because I think it would have the opposite effect and like oh they're forcing us why are they forcing us to get the vaccine the government's trying to spy on us control us why would I want to do this uh, and it's, so I think 
it, it kind of would have the opposite effect more than I think the argument of like, oh, would it persuade people? Uh, and it, it, I don't think it would be sufficient to overcome health concerns or doubts regarding eff- efficacy and safety of these vaccines. It's important to understand if one wants to increase vaccine take up, it's the effect on these individuals and community who harbor doubts about the vaccine, which really matters. Um, it's not really about the ones who are open for the vaccine passport because they were willing to get um, vaccinated anyway. Mm. It's really these people that don't want to get vaccine. And if they don't trust it, putting a passport in it won't solve that issue. And it's really these communities, especially these ethnic minorities, they have to be really targeted to improve trust in these pandemic policies. Uh, And a big way that anti-vaxxers are able to build in these communities is through promoting the view that the COVID measures are not a matter of public health, but a type of social control by a hostile elite. Uh, And the presence of vaccine passports for core activities can give service to these fears and can gain traction to the anti-vaxxers and give the perception that vaccination is a measure of compulsion imposed upon the community and then it, it re- just results in anger and increased willing unwillingness to get vaccinated so really i think it is about outreach into these communities and trying to um target them but it's just like i i, I that sounds like great and a, a great initiative and to do that but i think the problem is with these individuals is that they're willing to just gets their sources from anti-vaxxers and they they are just completely um, corrupted in a way that this is what they believe and they're not willing to take sources from other th- things that like vaccines are safe, vaccines are efficient, you should be willing to do it whereas they think these sources are corrupt that they're, I've had this discussion where they think that these sources of like the World Health Organization are sponsored by Bill Gates and Bill Gates is, wants to get you to get vaccinated yeah. and that they will, that he's basically pushing this agenda out on people. So it's like, how do you, I really don't know how you would target these people because you nearly need to, 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 to turn one anti-vaxxer or two, take like a day. I, I really think you nearly need to sit down with them and then it's like they'd easily but fall see, down that rabbit hole yeah. again. But I don't think sitting down and explaining would do anything because we're dealing with, like a multifactorial problem here. These people have a information bias. They rely strongly what could be considered like a system of beliefs rather than logic or rhetoric. So there's a lot of hoops that you have to go over. I think you would have to like redefine the way they perceive thinking and, and get into conclusions from evidence. I think this whole thing would have to be demolished and rebuild it again within the societies that you know have all of these problems it's just i think it's so difficult because i i don't know how you would even get that to occur like i think sometimes i think they're just it's too far gone like how do you like it's they're too hard for gone to come back from that and i'm like maybe we, we shouldn't be just it's just a waste of time to try and be doing it and it should be just really forced upon people but it's never That's a waste really of time and forcing anyone to anything never it's it's never benefit it's never works out good for anyone uh like the stupid thing we have this free will or call it whatever you want like you know, it doesn't like taking orders especially if we don't agree with the orders in the first place so i think this is what people it's and there is not a simple solution right like you said th- these people have already preconceived ide- ideologies and it's so hard to convince them otherwise so 
like all we have to do is just keep doing the good work and just trying to make more people aware and let them come to the realization eventually we can't let them be enlightened yeah i've seen that as well in the u.s they're saying that the the vaccination rollout is actually slowing up now because all all the willing people who wanted to get vaccine have kind of got it now and it's like now they're getting (laughs) to the point where they have to get to the outreach to these communities that don't want to get vaccine and and they need to try and get that's this is a new like they have to change it now and be like okay they have to they f- initially they have to have the setup of it for people who are willing now they have to kind of change it and be like okay we need to get to target these people who who are not willing to get vaccinated so i think that's the just people don't trust the big governments because sometimes the governments do things i don't know it's if that's the good word but sometimes they might think they do things for the greater good but they actually cause more harm to the individuals than they could think of you know yeah yeah um yeah so that's all in all there are reasons to conclude that vaccine passports for basic activities may actually undermine vaccine rollout by disincentivizing the very population who need the most incentivizing Uh, and the evidence passes increasing vaccine uptake is weak and suspicions of compulsion and reports of people barred from workplaces for not being vaccinated may result in increased distrust among individuals who are already concerned about infringements on citizens' rights. By contrast, what has proved successful are basic measures of community engagement involving trusted community leaders taking mobile vaccination units into communities, bringing medical experts who can answer any questions and providing food and drink to those who attend. They, these, I think, are the ones that are proved successful. So, to conclude, there are good reasons to reject any va- pa- passport schemes which make everyday social participation depending on a vaccine at a point in the pandemic where increased engagement is critical both to overcome doubts about vaccination and to enhance the pandemic response more generally the possibility of vaccine passports threatens to alienate marginalized communities further so uh that's kind of what i wanted to say and i suppose that we did that survey as well on instagram yeah and i think it kind of echoed kind of what i've discussed already um that a lot of people just are very skeptical and um not wouldn't be comfortable i suppose with the implementation of them but i still think it as john said every every private business has the their own right to do what they want any country i think has any right to do what they want to do what letting who what what citizens in so um and and i'm sure there's and I'm sure there's loads of people like me who don't care if if I get COVID passport, diploma, framed poster. I just PhD. Just, just give me whatever you want, just so yeah. I can go home. You know, yeah. I don't care what's going to be. Uh, yeah, but like, but the majority of the Instagram poll it was like they are in favor if it would allow them to go somewhere, and I think they just come from the same mm, the thought perspective as I do. Just whatever it is just so i can go and be there with my family or something like something like that but there were of course a fraction of people that didn't agree um and i think in their minds it was like it shouldn't be transaction or or reward for getting the vaccine Mm. hopefully so uh yeah well i'd say it's what's going to happen again is going to be this great green pass i don't know how at the moment i think with the way in Ireland that they're reopening, I don't think they're going to restrict people being allowed in 
just to vaccinate it but we let's just watch this space and see i know israel was the one place that was doing this and this is, was a, a lot of heat countries were like maybe we should be doing this but i think i don't know if it's um if it's been as effective in other countries as it would be in israel so and as well i seen then this was another thing that in the israel uh parliament uh, they actually they passed this bill that allowed the Ministry of Health to transfer personal identification of people who have not yet received their first vaccination dose to the local authorities um, to hopefully improve the low vaccination rates among these people. And this kind of raised concerns about citizens' rights to autonomy over their body and free choice about whether they to receive the vaccine or not because they have the info on who isn't vaccinated. Uh, but and would that- again, lead to discrimination, but... Would that, would that, that would be true. I don't know. Okay. Just, I'm going to just roll and, and you <laughs> just see, you just pick holes in what I'm saying. Okay. Cause I'm sure I'm wrong, but would that be a case if you could say that your civil rights are being infringed, if you live in the society when there is no infringement of your social, of your social rights to start with. But don't we live in the world that we already are prohibited from doing loads of things that we are not free in the sense of being free? Because you can't really go outside naked, you know, and you can do a lot of things. You are not completely free to do whatever you want. There are some civil infringements already upon you that you adhere to it, whether you like it or not. So whether saying that the vaccine would be infringement of my social rights, is that just over-exaggeration or people not being aware that they already live in the society where they, where they can't do, they're not free. They just live in the illusion of freedom. In countries where you have a democracy, um, the laws and rights are generally a reflection of what the public is okay with and what they're willing to put up with. So... In this case, let's say in our country, in, in, in Ireland, um, if we're really, and if the bulk of the population really isn't happy with vaccine passports and we end up bringing them in, we'd probably vote out the government and maybe install a government that uh, will get rid of them. Um, mm. But but in some other countries, yeah, they, they don't have as much power to do that. Um, I think if the public is generally okay with vaccine passports, they'll happen. If they really, If we really hated them, they wouldn't happen. Yeah, I, I I agree. And I just like just to sum up what I was talking about, I just don't agree with the idea that the vaccine passports are an infringement of your civil liberties because they already are infringed. Mm. You're not free to start with. But I suppose it's more that they, uh, I think that from their perspective is that you have to like get an injection or uh, something got to be put into your body. Uh, yeah, so that was it really. Um, would you like, would you care like actually that's quite would you mind if you went to a would you be i suppose you would be more comfortable going to a pub and restaurant knowing everyone else is vaccinated or yeah. would you really yeah yeah but it wouldn't stop you going to a. well we were planning on doing something in august in ireland and i said that i'm not gonna go unless i am vaccinated mm. so uh, that's for me for me being or that's... not being vaccinated is quite important okay but this is my own perspective on it like you know mm, yeah 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 it's, uh, it's, it, it is, it's like it's interesting because it's like such a like some people are like what you would be and then other people are completely opposite so it's it's like such a dive 
divergent in opinions and it's like how do you please everyone so yeah uh, and i yeah. also think that you shouldn't apply your in the individual thinking about an issue does not does not always translate into like a society-wide thinking yeah. you know yeah um, exactly yeah that's that's it with these vaccine passports because it's obviously it's definitely a louder minority i think it's always a louder minority so yeah it doesn't necessarily reflect everything everyone's opinion um yeah so we will watch the space let us know what you think do you think vaccine passwords are a good idea or not a good idea as as we mentioned please let us know on our instagram uh, and our twitter skeptically i or you can even email us or your opinion skeptically inclined at gmail.com it's skeptically with a c and yeah oh yeah the last thing i want to say is uh to quote Jared Leto, we live in a society, isn't that it? <laughs> what you were all about? Did you watch? Did you watch the uh, Snyder Cut? No, I haven't watched it yet. Okay, um, it's very long. It's like four hours though. So I watched I it one sitting. Yeah, but Joker was only at the end, wasn't it? Ah, <laughs> uh, don't don't spoil it. I I can't <laughs> even like remember. It's not spo- like we all know Joker's in at the end, and I don't know. I kind <laughs> of slept a bit over the movie, so I don't know. <laughs> I mean, the Joker being, Jared Leto's Joker being in, in any part of that movie would spoil the movie for me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think why he's getting so much hate. Mm, yeah. I like him. I think it's that he, pute- uh, I, won't, I won't make uh, defamatory <laughs> comments that are unfounded, but yeah. there are questions about him. <laughs> yeah. It's just, okay. Anyways. Let's move on from Jared Leto. Uh, so yeah, that was today's episode. I uh, hope you enjoyed it today. We talked again about the CDC, the FaceMax, we talked about the Neuralink. John gives a good in, uh, overview of what the devel- recent developments were and smell training. If you lost your um, uh, your your smell your or smile. taste during COVID mm-hmm. after a COVID nineteen infection, uh, and then yeah, Tom gives us a good interview of pain and a potential treatment in the future for yeah. uh, reducing pain. Uh, Very in, so much experimental yet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So don't. Um, don't be anticipating it anytime soon but yeah and yeah i give a just a quick overview of the the vaccine passports what the fair the pros and cons of it and what people are generally thinking and um i think it's a discussion that's still going to be maybe in the future when more people are vaccinated but we will see uh yeah so i hope you enjoyed the episode let us know if you have any other papers or anything you wanted to discuss uh we love to hear from you i keep saying that stay skeptical guys we will catch you on the next one we're uh on to the next 10 yeah stay skeptical guys and bye bye bye